Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? It is time for the tech news for Thursday, January 27th, 2022. The Journal of Public Health recently posted a study that shows anti-vaccination groups on Facebook were sowing the seeds of mistrust regarding COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines before there was even an organized vaccine development program from the United States government. According to the study, the groups were circulating misinformation about COVID-19 and vaccines for COVID-19 as early as February 2020. And heck, that's before we started seeing lockdowns in various cities around the world and in the United States. I was still on vacation in February 2020 at, at the point where these stories were starting to circulate. And in fact, I was starting to wonder if I would ever get back home. But um, but I did. Anyway, the researchers identified the anti-vax groups that were most active on Facebook at that time, and they have some pretty remarkable names. You know, names like National Vaccine Information Center, which makes it sound like it's some sort of official agency that focuses on vaccines, but in fact it was a disinformation campaign designed to promote conspiracy theories and anti-vax messaging and undermine confidence in vaccinations in general. Two of the other four anti-vax groups that the uh, research report named have similar names to that. One is a Vaccination Information Network, and the other is Vaccine Machine. And the four groups that the researchers identified had posted around 2,060 times on Facebook from February 2020 to May 2020, and about half of those posts mentioned COVID-19. Presumably, the other half were just kind of more generally anti-vax. The study really pulls back the curtain on some important things. Uh, One is that misinformation campaigns really got the jump on U.S. public health officials. Uh, Those deceptive posts came out well before we started getting, you know, reliable information from organizations like the CDC, for example. Another is that this is yet more proof of how Facebook facilitates the spread of harmful information. I'm not saying that the platform creates harmful information, but definitely facilitates the spread of it. And I know I'm beating a dead horse here. I know I've talked about this countless times, but Facebook's entire business model depends upon people spreading and engaging with content on Facebook. I mean, that engagement is a commodity that Facebook sells to advertisers. So it financially benefits Facebook when these things happen. And it was really only after massive pressure that the company indicated it would do anything about it. Uh, In fact, that's what a lot of those internal papers that Francis Hogan leaked to the authorities and press indicated, that when there were voices inside Facebook that were warning about stuff like misinformation campaigns, they were often ignored or silenced. Anyway, the study is titled Faster Than Warp Speed, Early Attention to COVID-19 by Anti-Vaccine Groups on Facebook. Uh, Warp Speed is a reference not to Star Trek, although, I mean, indirectly, yes, but more directly to the United States government's uh, uh, project to fast-track vaccine development for COVID-19. 
The big news at Activision Blizzard this month has mostly been about how Microsoft announced it was going to acquire the company by the end of fiscal year 2023, assuming regulatory bodies around the world don't throw the deal off track. But there's more going on at that company than a big acquisition. Employees at Raven Software, which is a division within Activision Blizzard, have formed a union. Uh, specifically, the employees I'm talking about are 34 Quality Assurance, or QA, testers within Raven Software. They are the ones who have unionized. Now, part of the unionization process, which I've actually seen firsthand now, involves uh, the union potentially reaching out to the company and asking that the company formally recognize the union. Like, essentially saying, hey, we have uh, uh, a threshold of employees who want to unionize, uh, and here's maybe some union cards that people have signed that we, we're hoping that you will recognize this as a union. Uh, and, and this can go a couple of ways. Uh, the company can choose to voluntarily recognize the union, uh, and that process isn't necessarily straightforward. There's usually some back and forth between the company and the union organizers to determine who's actually covered by the union, etc., uh, or a company can choose to not voluntarily recognize the union, and that's the way Activision Blizzard chose. So now those QA testers at Raven are going to have to file with the National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB, in order to get permission to hold a union election. So the election is a more formal process, and ultimately what it does is if the election passes, if if a majority of employees uh, vote in favor of a union that serves as evidence that they do in fact want to unionize. And should the election pass, then the NLRB will certify the union. And that means that companies are going to have to deal with union representatives for the purposes of collective bargaining for things like compensation and benefits and that kind of stuff. Raven released a statement expressing disappointment that Activision Blizzard did not voluntarily recognize their union, but expressed confidence that the outcome will still be the same, that, in fact, the election will show that the employees wish to unionize. As for what this means when Microsoft takes control of Activision Blizzard, assuming that deal goes through, well, Microsoft is also not known for being super enthusiastic about unionization. It's a kind way of putting it. But anyway, I uh, just want to say I stand with the QA testers at Raven. You know, solidarity. Speaking of unions, organizers at Amazon's JFK 8 Fulfillment Center in Staten Island, New York, have reached the number of signatures they need in order to hold a union election vote. The group had previously attempted this last year, but they did not get enough signatures. Uh, to merit a vote on whether or not to form a union, organizers need to secure the signatures of 30% of the overall workforce that express interest in doing so. Unsurprisingly, Amazon representatives have protested this whole move and they question if the signatures that have been gathered are even legitimate. They argue that the previous attempt from last year shows that workers at the Fulfillment Center are not interested in organizing and that besides, you know, quote, our employees have always had a choice of whether or not to join a union, end quote. Now, pardon my skepticism here, but Amazon is also the company that got a slap on the wrist in the wake of a different union vote, one that took place at a fulfillment center in Alabama. And in that case, in which employees voted against forming a union, and Amazon was, you know, really happy about that, the organizers 
alleged that Amazon reps had interfered with the election process. That objection was sustained by the National Labor Relations Board, and they, the NLRB authorized a new vote. And that new vote has not yet happened. But essentially, you know, Amazon has a history that seems to indicate that the company is very keen on discouraging unionization. And on a related note, Amazon made headlines last year when journalists reported that the company had launched an influence campaign to make Amazon seem like a super awesome place to work. And perhaps maybe as part of that too, you know, kind of discourage dangerous ideas like unionization. Essentially, the story was that Amazon was paying employees to post on social media about how much they loved working at Amazon. And specifically, folks at warehouses and fulfillment centers were encouraged monetarily, that is, paid, to post positive stories about their work experience. This program began in 2018, uh, during a time when folks were kind of scrutinizing Amazon's working conditions, which were reported to range from not-so-great to degrading and inhumane. Uh, Like, some of the stories were pretty awful. I mean, if my employer set performance targets for me that I could only meet if I were to pee in a bottle rather than take a bathroom break whenever I needed to go, I would call that dehumanizing. And I work from home, not in a warehouse. And yeah, um, that's the kind of stuff that was being reported out of Amazon fulfillment centers. Now, the program of promoting Amazon as a great place to work consisted of more than 50 online accounts on Twitter, uh, all using the appended title of Amazon FC Ambassador, and many of them using similar or sometimes identical content inside their posts, all of which positioned Amazon as a hunky-dory kind of place to work, almost like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. The strategy did not work. Uh, Folks called it out right away, and it now appears that Amazon has completely scrapped the program by the end of last year and then got to work essentially wiping away any trace that it was ever a thing. On a related note and a peek behind the scenes, I recently went through some FCC and FTC training here at work at iHeart, and that includes learning about how the FTC and the FCC set out rules regarding things like sponsored posts and, and ads. Like, content creators, we're obligated to indicate when something is an ad or a sponsored piece of content. We are not supposed to pass it off as if it's our genuine thoughts if we wouldn't have done that otherwise. Uh, And you've probably seen this in online places like YouTube and Instagram and that kind of thing, where you're supposed to make it explicitly clear if the content you're presenting is sponsored or is an outright advertisement. Now, I would not be surprised if eventually we see similar rules applied to companies that are not directly associated with content creation, because what Amazon did would be against the rules if it were to happen on, say, a podcast or a radio show or television show or online video. So in other words, if I had done something similar to what was going on at Amazon with this promotional program and I did not explicitly make it clear that this was a sponsored message I was sending out, I could be held liable. I could be fined an enormous amount of money or my company could be fined an enormous amount of money. And I'm guessing that we'll probably see a point where companies in general will be held to that, where they are not allowed to run these kinds of campaigns without it potentially resulting in fines. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. 
And our last Amazon story for this episode is about the company's sold by Amazon program. In that program, Amazon partnered with third-party vendors and then would promote and sell products from those vendors with the sold by Amazon label. So uh, the vendors would enter into an agreement with Amazon and that agreement would include a minimum payment rate for stuff sold on Amazon. And then if sales went above that minimum, then Amazon would start taking a cut of the revenue. But the attorney general for the state of Washington launched an investigation into Amazon and concluded that this practice was anti-competitive and included illegal price fixing and that the program was meant to push Amazon's sales numbers up at the expense of independent third-party vendors on the platform. Uh, Amazon subsequently discontinued the program and will pay a fee of more than $2 million to the office of the attorney general. And reportedly, that fine will go to fund more antitrust enforcement efforts. We've got a lot more stories to cover, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Okay, we just came back from ads, uh, and LG announced to advertising companies this week that it would offer guaranteed outcome ad services through its connected televisions. So once you start cutting through the marketing speak, it appears that this really indicates that LG is going to offer up stuff like targeted advertising capabilities through its smart TVs. So if you buy an LG television, then you should expect more targeted ads to come through. Uh, ads on smart televisions are not a new thing. If you have a smart TV, you're probably familiar with this. A lot of smart TVs will display an ad on, say, the home screen for the television or within certain menus. But LG has been particularly aggressive with ads and now is looking to step up into that targeted ad game. And according to Digiday, LG will, quote, promise brands that their CTV, that stands for connected television, video ads, running on LG smart TVs meet campaign goals across multiple KPIs. Uh, KPI stands for key performance indicators, such as video completion rates, buyers only pay if videos are played in their entirety, demographic targets, reach and frequency goals, etc. Conversion metrics for mobile are also offered, but elements including tune-in, web visits, physical location visits, etc., won't be available for another few months, end quote. And that starts to sound a bit scary to me. I mean, from that, I infer that eventually LG-connected televisions are going to share information with your smartphone, including any location tracking that your phone uses, and share that information with advertisers. So that, let's say that you've got a company that advertises mattresses, and that company then sees that the targeted customers are actually visiting brick-and-mortar stores that the company operates because the LG smart TV is sharing that location data between apps on the smartphone, the television, and the whole advertising campaign in the first place. It starts to get a little invasive. Also, if we're talking targeted advertising that takes into account stuff like your browsing habits, that, you know, it's connected to an account that is uh, living on, say, your computer or your smartphone, a lot of other red flags pop up for me, and it could be a really big privacy issue. Just imagine for a second that you're living in an apartment with a whole bunch of roommates, and you might happen to own an LG smart TV, and you offer to have that be the communal television in the living room space. So your living room TV is your smart LG TV. If that television is connected to 
some sort of account on your smartphone or laptop. And it's possible that the ads that end up being displayed are revealing information that you really didn't want to share with your roommates. Maybe it's like medical information or something. And that's just one hypothetical situation I can imagine where this is not a good thing. But we'll have to see how it plays out. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And today is also when the TikTok platform will begin promoting a website called aboutholocaust.org. The World Jewish Congress and UNESCO created that site to educate people about the Holocaust and to fight back against misinformation and denial campaigns, which unfortunately proliferate across the internet. Advocacy groups have long complained that TikTok was not taking enough action to curtail anti-Semitic messaging on the platform and Holocaust denial in videos as well. In addition, several Jewish TikTok creators have reported being the target of abuse. Sometimes they've had their content mistakenly flagged or removed with no justification. And according to CNET, there have been some trends on TikTok that I'm not even going to describe here because I find them deeply upsetting and very sad. But I will say they are trends that minimize or even celebrate the Holocaust, which is, it, it, it turns my stomach. Now, I think TikTok is taking the right actions to try and push back against these trends on its platform and to make sure that people visiting TikTok have the opportunity to learn from reputable sources about the Holocaust and not allow misinformation to run unchecked. Uh, of course, it will remain to be seen about whether or not these efforts are effective. Do you remember way back in November 2019 when Tesla unveiled its design for the Cybertruck. Uh, the reaction to that unveiling was, uh, I'll be kind, I'll say it was mixed. Maybe part of that is because during a demonstration to show how unbreakable the truck's windows were, the windows broke. Whoopsie. Uh, it also has a pretty funky design to it. Like some people just absolutely hated it. A few people thought it was weird, but kind of interesting. I, I think it's interesting, but not, it doesn't look practical to me, but what do I know? I don't drive anyway. Um, and we got reports late last year that an updated design of the Cybertruck was spotted driving around test tracks in Fremont. Uh, well, the Cybertruck was supposed to come out by the end of this year. Actually, I think they were supposed to start shipping late last year. That didn't happen. And now it looks like it's not going to happen this year either. Because in an earnings call yesterday, Elon Musk revealed that the production of the truck has been delayed until 2023. He also said that the company would not be introducing any new models this year. And he also dismissed the idea that Tesla would pursue producing a low-cost vehicle in the near future. He said there were no plans to design a $25,000 car. Uh, and he essentially said that the company doesn't really need to make a low-cost car, at least not yet because they'll end up selling every car they're able to produce. Now, you could interpret that as being boastful, right? To say like, oh, we don't need to have a budget car in our lineup. We don't. It doesn't matter what we charge. We're going to sell every single car off the line, which is kind of how Musk said it, I guess. So you, it wouldn't be unfair to, to frame it that way. However, I don't really think of it as boasting. I think of it more as an indication that Tesla doesn't produce nearly as many vehicles as 
some of its competitors do. For example, in 2021, Tesla uh, said that it delivered 936,000 vehicles. So below 1 million, but 936,000. Toyota, meanwhile, produced 7.6 million vehicles at the end of their last fiscal year, which was at the end of last March. So if you're looking at that level of scale, to me, it makes sense that, the, that Tesla is not focusing on low-cost vehicles yet because it has not reached a, a scale of production where it would merit the move to making low-cost vehicles. In fact, it might not even be financially feasible to make low-cost vehicles uh, right now because of those issues of the scale of production. Now, as Tesla grows, that could very much change. But I, I think that's kind of what, well, that was my interpretation of what Elon Musk was getting at. I could be totally off base. Now, here's a question. If a self-driving vehicle gets into an accident, whom do you find at fault? Is it the car's owner? Was it the person who was in the vehicle? Was it the car maker? Well, the Law Commission of England and Wales, as well as the Scottish Law Commission, released a joint report that suggests people who are, you know, in an autonomous vehicle should not be held responsible for road safety issues. Instead, the car maker should be held accountable for any road safety issues that uh, that occur because of that car. And this has been one of those areas of debate as engineers get closer to producing what we might actually call a truly autonomous vehicle. But uh, the commissions also point out quite correctly that there is massive confusion among the general public as to what is and what is not a truly self-driving car. And we were just talking about Tesla, so I'm going to use them as an example of how the public can get confused. Tesla refers to its you know, basic driver assist suite of features as autopilot. And I would argue that sets an expectation that isn't very realistic because the word autopilot seems to suggest, at least to me, that the driver doesn't have to worry about anything because the car is an autopilot. But arguably worse than that, the company has uh, the full self-driving mode, which is in beta. It's not in full release yet. But I would say that's not really a full self-driving mode, even though it's called full self-driving. I would say it's not full self-driving. You still have to have an owner prepared to uh, intervene and to you're not supposed to take your hands off the wheel. You're supposed to maintain your attention. That, to me, does not mean full self-driving. Uh, so there's no wonder that the average person might have an unrealistic expectation as to what a self-driving car can and cannot do. Anyway... Should the UK adopt the recommendations these commissions have suggested and hold car makers accountable for any accidents that happen with their, their vehicles, we could see a precedent set in which governments around the world agree that car makers are the responsible ones if self-driving vehicles get into accidents. Now, personally, I think that's the most reasonable approach. Um, you know, you could even get more granular than that if you wanted to you know, argue that the department in charge of uh, whatever part of the uh, the self-driving system was at fault really takes the blame. But I think that the car maker is the one that makes the most sense. And I think when we start talking about stuff like insurance, that's going to have to play a factor as well, assuming we do get to a world where, you know, you might own a self-driving car, keeping in mind that 
most models I see suggest that self-driving cars will actually be owned by companies that are essentially ride-hailing companies, not necessarily sold to individual customers. Um, but yeah, this could really set a, a legal precedent that we could see spread around the world. And um, unless we're talking about a case where a human is interfering with the autonomous operations of a car, I think that that just makes sense. If you are talking about something where somebody, I don't know, rests control of the car from the system, uh, then obviously you would be in a different case. And I don't think the car maker should be held accountable in those instances. That's why I think a lot of car companies that have been kind of playing with the idea of autonomous cars have also floated the concept of vehicles that don't have controls in them, right? Because then you take away, or at least human accessible controls them. You take away the ability for a human to like turn the wheel suddenly when it should be under the control of the car itself. Okay, we've got a few more stories to cover, but before we get to those, let's take another quick break. Block Incorporated CEO Jack Dorsey is probably sweating a little bit right now. Uh, Block Inc. used to be known as Square, which is its famous product and service. Uh, you probably have encountered a Square dongle at some point. These are typically it's a device that you plug into something like an iOS device, like an iPhone or a tablet, you know, an iPad, and it allows you to process credit card payments. And uh, the tablet or phone acts as the communications node that then works with the back end of the credit card companies. And you can use the iOS device as a point of sale. And it's very useful for small business owners. Well, Apple has recently announced that it is working on a service that will allow those small business owners to accept payments directly through their iOS devices without the need for an additional piece of hardware, like a Square dongle. And so it's just saying, well, we're going to offer that as a native uh, capability in our devices. So if you want, you can use our payment system and you don't even have to have like a Square account or anything like that. And uh, there aren't a whole lot of details here, but Bloomberg suggests that Apple's going to use NFC technology as the foundation. NFC stands for Near Field Communication that allows for the wireless data transfer of very small packets of information across small physical distances. Like, you know, you hold two phones up next to each other and they exchange contact information, that kind of thing. That's, that typically uses NFC. And modern credit cards typically have a chip that uses NFC for contactless payments. So for those where you can tap the card against a, a point of sale, those kind of things, it'll work with that, at least according to Bloomberg. Uh, and it will be interesting to see how Block Inc. responds to this. I imagine there's going to be a battle of service fees to try and stay competitive because usually uh, on the back end of this, if you're a small business owner, you're having to pay a certain amount of money or surrender a certain amount per sale to fund these services, right? So if Block Inc. is able to offer a more competitive fee versus Apple, then it might be able to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but it's too early to say. Here in the United States, the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, which is already a super popular agency in this country, is poised to require taxpayers who want to use certain IRS online services to first use a third-party company called ID.me to verify their identity. And 
you know, it makes sense that the IRS wants a way to authenticate that a person is whom they claim to be, particularly when you're talking about stuff that relates to taxes or accessing sensitive documents that relate to a person's income. You know, it makes sense you want to make sure you protect all that. Well, ID.me is going to require users to submit some documents to prove they are who they say they are, as well as to submit a video selfie as part of that verification process. So we're talking about facial recognition technology at play here. And for several reasons, many security and privacy advocates have criticized this announcement. For one thing, it brings a private company into the citizens' interaction with the IRS. And there are worries that that alone compromises security as soon as the IRS chose to offload verification to a private third-party company. Then there are many of the same general issues we've seen with facial recognition software that we should consider. For example, we've seen time and again through various different facial recognition systems that many of them have a bias to them and that this bias often makes them unreliable when used with people of color or with women or with people who are gender nonconforming. The critics also point out that this can create a deeper digital divide because it means that users who want to access those online services will have to have a web camera or a smartphone with a a camera on it in order to be able to do the video selfie thing and to use facial recognition uh, to, to prove they are who they say they are. And not everyone can afford that. Not everyone has that at their disposal, but everyone has to deal with the IRS. Now, all that being said, ID.me has claimed that its technology has shown no bias or inherent unreliability based on skin color. Uh, I don't know that there's any independent research into that, but ID.me says it's not the case. Uh, and they also point out that the online services where this will apply are limited to just a couple of features. But, um, you know, one of those features is checking your account online. That sounds like a really basic action to me. Maybe I'm missing something here. Now, IRS has said you can still file and pay taxes without going through the online route at all. And if you're doing that, like if you're doing it in the old-fashioned paper and pencil way, or paper and pen way, I guess, you don't even have to worry about any of this, right? ID.me is not at all involved with any of that side of things, and it's not a gatekeeper. Uh, Still, privacy advocates are concerned about where this is headed. And finally, let's talk about secret government agencies and how to uncover them. A researcher in Germany named Lilith Whitman says that she used an Apple AirTag to prove that a a German government agency called the Federal Telecommunications Service is actually a cover organization for a secret branch of the German Interior Intelligence Agency. Whitman was working on a computer program to evaluate this telecommunications service's work, And presumably that work is to help telecommunications companies in Germany. But that department turns out to have no official budget. And that kind of sounds sus, right? Well, Whitman looked into it further, trying to get to the real story of what the supposed department really was all about. Uh, She did online research. She made phone calls. She drove to offices, or at least to what was claimed to be an office, to check it out in person and lots of other actions, uh, some of which just led to dead ends. And ultimately, she deduced that 
the Federal Telecommunications Service, is really part of Germany's Ministry of the Interior, specifically the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution, which is kind of similar to the FBI here in the United States, with some pretty major differences. But, you know, that's kind of the the realm this agency works in. And Whitman was told repeatedly that she was on the wrong track, which obviously she would be, right? If she was on the right track, she would still get that message. Uh, And if she was on the wrong track, then she would also get that message. So no matter what, she would be told, you're not on the right track. So she decided to try an experiment. Uh, She mailed a package containing an Apple AirTag to the supposed telecommunication agency's postal address. Now, AirTags let you track something, right? Like you can connect it to pretty much anything. You can attach it to a bag. And let's say that you're going through an airport and you're going to check your luggage. You might have an air tag in your luggage so that you can make sure you know where your luggage is when you get to your destination. Maybe it doesn't pop up at, at baggage retrieval and you want to find out where it is. AirTag can help you track it down. So she puts one of these inside a package and she tracks it as it goes through the postal system. And she says that the tag went not to the supposed address of the Federal Telecommunications Service, but rather ended up being delivered to the Office for the Protection of the Constitution in Cologne, Germany. And that seems to support her assertion that the Federal Telecommunications Service is just a front for the intelligence gathering agency. Now, you might wonder, why would she do this? Like, why would she do uncover the secrets? Why would she share that information? Well, you can bet that if a security researcher has figured this out, the quote-unquote bad guys also know about it. And if the bad guys know your cover story, then you don't have a cover story, right? Like, it, it, it's like you're wearing, wearing a Groucho Marx glasses and calling it a disguise. So this is one of those functions that hackers fill that can easily be misinterpreted. You might say, well, why is this hacker pointing out this big gap in security? Isn't that dangerous? If the hacker says, hey, here's how I hacked into the system, isn't that dangerous? Well, for one thing, when a hacker does this, it sends the message that there is a gap in security, which really means there's no security at all, because you can sure as heck bet the bad guys are not going to let on that the system has flaws in it, until it's too late to do anything about it. And for another thing, it really is a message to whatever the agency or organization or company or whatever it is, it's a message to them to say, hey, you're doing a bad job with your security. And if you want to do what you're doing, you gotta do it better. So you could say that this is a way of doing quality control when it comes to gathering intelligence. Anyway, I thought it was an interesting story. I wanted to conclude with that one. Hope you are all doing well. If you have suggestions for topics that I should cover on Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, uh, a technology trend in general, a specific kind of technology and how it works, maybe it's one of the Tech Stuff tidbits you would like me to cover, let me know. The best way to do that is to reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.